Hey Northridge, hope you're having a great summer. And I have to tell you, I, I'm not disappointed with this unforgettable series at all. Each speaker has impacted me in just new and fresh ways. And this weekend, I'm really excited about the potential. This is a first time communicator as a part of our series. And when I heard her story, I just really wanted her to share it here. And I'm so thankful that she said yes. She's the author of 10 books, her latest God is just not fair. Finding hope when life doesn't make sense really resonates with me because it speaks to the, to the reality of our lives as human beings. She's been a part of huge national conferences, teamed with Beth Moore to lead out impacting events, and, and now she's here to share with us. So I hope you'll give a warm, warm welcome to Jennifer Rothschild. Good morning, good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to be here in this place, and I'm so happy to also be with the folks in Brighton. Good morning. And this is a blessing to be in Michigan. I live in Missouri. And you know I'm not from Missouri because I don't call it Missouri. People that are from there call it Missouri. I grew up in Florida. And we have lived in Missouri for the last 15 years. And the reason we're there is my husband named Phil. My husband is Phil. We've been married 29 years. And he is a professor at Missouri State University. That means that my husband had to go get his Ph.D., and because he has his Ph.D. and his name is Phil, I have my very own Dr. Yes, I have my very own Dr. Phil. We uh, have two sons. They were born 10 years apart. And so our oldest is 26, and he's married. We have a lovely daughter-in-law. And then our youngest is 16. He is still single. And uh, that's our family, and they are dear to me. And I have learned a lot from my people. I know you have too. We learn a lot from each other. We also learn a lot in life from the things that we don't really invite into our lives. We wish weren't there, but sometimes the hard stuff are the best teachers. And for me, that has been the case. When I was 15 years old, I was uh, having some difficulty with my eyesight. I didn't really realize it, to be honest with you. I just thought something was wrong with me. I thought it was clumsy. So, for example, I was in junior high, and when the bell would ring for us to change classes, I remember this anxiety washing over me because I had to go out into those dimly lit, crowded hallways to try to navigate to my next class. And I was constantly bumping into other students and running into a locker and... I was so humiliated because I felt so clumsy and I couldn't understand why everyone else was so, so graceful. I remember during PE, it was softball season, and I remember getting my gloves and I was always assigned to right field, and I would stand out in right field with my glove and I would pray that a ball would not come to me. I'm telling you, softball really improved my prayer life. And so I would pray that a ball would not come to me because I couldn't figure out how these students could catch the ball. Now, this was Miami, so it was always bright and sunny, and I would look up into the sky, and it was just a whitewash. I couldn't see anything, and I couldn't figure out how these students could see the ball coming and catch it. So what I would do is stare at the grass to try to detect a shadow coming my way. And as soon as that shadow of a ball would come, <laughs> I would lift my glove and my prayers and hope for the best. 
I couldn't figure out how all these students could catch the ball or even hit the ball. I just thought, I must be the most awkward, unathletic person that ever lived. Well, one night, I was with my mother. We were walking um, upstairs to visit a friend in her upstairs apartment. And as we were walking up those stairs, I was tripping up those stairs. And my mom stops mid-stride, and she says to me, what, What's wrong, Jennifer? Can you not see those stairs? And I was just as incredulous. I said, well, what do you mean, Mom? You can see the stairs? Well, that's about all it took. And my mother had me to the eye doctor the next day. And within a few days, I was at an eye hospital. And after several days of testing at this eye hospital, the doctors explained to us that I had a disease in both of my eyes. And that was the reason for the vision loss I had experienced. The disease was called retinitis pigmentosa. It was causing the retina in both of my eyes to deteriorate. And at that point, such a significant portion of my retinas had deteriorated that I was declared legally blind. But what the doctors also told us is that that same kind of deterioration that had already happened would continue to occur until eventually the remainder, which meant the entirety, of my retinas would be gone. That meant that the prognosis of the disease was total blindness. That is not what we expected to hear that day. I remember the silence in that conference room as we learned that prognosis. I remember the silence on the drive home, 45 minutes. And then I remember when I got home and that silence was broken as I sat down at our old upright piano. You see, we'd had this piano since I was in the third grade because I had begged my mother to let me take piano lessons. And so she went to a garage sale and she got me this piano for $100. And it's a good thing because six months later, I begged my mama to let me stop taking piano lessons. <laughs> so I wasn't a very good pianist. But that day, when I sat down to play, um, I understood what I was doing on that piano in a way I never had. And I played a song that I had never played before because it had been written in a key that was too difficult. And as I began to play the piano by ear that day, I believe it was as if God allowed a door to close at an eye hospital and he allowed a song to flow from heaven and fill my heart and come through my fingertips. Um, and even today at age 51, it's still, the message of that song is still a candle in my darkness because the song is that beautiful hymn it is well with my soul. The truth is that it's not always well with our circumstances. But in Christ, it can be well with our souls. The lyrics say, when peace like a river attends my way. Oh. And then there's times when sorrows like sea billows roll. But whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And it is. That's the truth. I can stand before you today with more years in physical darkness than I ever had in physical light. And I can tell you blindness is really hard, but it is still true that it is well with my soul. But it is equally true that that truth is not always tidy. <laughs> 
it sometimes doesn't feel so well. And you know what that, you know what I mean? You know what that's like? Because it's not well with your circumstances either. There are people right now hearing my voice who have struggled for years and years and years with an invisible illness like depression or fibromyalgia, and it is not well. You're struggling. It's hard. There's sometimes that, that we've, we've prayed for something for years and we don't get the answer that we'd hoped for. You've longed for a baby and instead you get infertility. Or perhaps you have a child and you have such hopes for their future and you find out that sweet baby has autism and you fear for that baby's future. Perhaps it's a loss of a spouse because they went home to be with the Lord far too soon. Or maybe they chose someone else to love and left you and it is not well. Perhaps it's being a young adult and you're looking at your future and you've got this education and you just can't find the job. Or maybe you're an older man who's had a job for 30 years and suddenly you don't get the paycheck, you get a pink slip. And someone else younger than you, less qualified, is getting paid more than you were. And it's just not well. And sometimes we look at these kind of things and we think, oh, it's just not fair. Or even more focused, sometimes we look at the Lord and we say, God, you're just not fair. A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. So this morning, I want you to consider what do you think about God? I mean, you may be watching this online right now in the middle of your living room, and that's a critical question. What do you think about God? Because it is the most important thing about you. So this morning, I want you to ask yourself, do I think God is just not fair? Or do I think God is just, comma, not fair. I want to draw for you four scenes, four word pictures for you to be able to see an image of God within them to see what you think about God. Scene one, a Tallahassee movie theater. In, two, in 1993, in the summertime, my husband Phil and I lived in Tallahassee because he got his PhD at Florida State. And so while he was in grad school, we had no money. And we had a three-year-old son. And so during the summer, we went to the cheap summer movie series. You got the movie and the popcorn for $1. And so every Wednesday morning, my friend Becky and I would go with her son and mine to the theater. Well, I had been two Wednesdays in a row. And I got to be honest with you, I was so bored that by the time the third Wednesday came around, I thought, I cannot sit through one more hour of this. Now, some of you might think, yes, it, it must be very difficult. Movies would be boring when you can't see them. <laughs> and yes, movies are not my favorite thing, but I'm telling you, blind or not, this would have been challenging because it was like an hour and a half of mind-numbing cartoon silliness. So I decided I was going to get a tape. Now, for those of you who are younger, a cassette tape is this rectangular thing. Yes, it's an antique. You can probably find them in some Goodwill stores. 
Um, and so I have this tape that someone had given me years earlier. And to be honest with you, I did not want to listen to it. I had avoided it intentionally because I knew what was on it. And I did not want to hear it. For whatever reason, I chose that tape that day. And I put it in my Walkman, another antique. You can look it up online, youngins, and see what it is. But I placed my cassette tape in it, and I dropped it in my bag. Well, once we got to the theater and the movie began, as soon as I knew all eyes were fastened on the screen, I pulled out that little earbud, and I covertly pressed play, and I began to listen to the tape. It was a woman named Marilyn Ford. She was telling her story of how, like me, she had lost the majority of her eyesight as a teenager. She talked about how difficult it was to finish high school and college. I knew exactly how that felt. She talked about how she wondered if a man would want to marry her. I knew exactly what it felt like to have that insecurity. She talked about how eventually she married and had children and the challenges with motherhood. And I had my own three-year-old at the time. I knew exactly what she was talking about. She talked about times where her sense of self-esteem and identity was challenged because of the lack of independence, and I could identify with that. She also talked about how frustrated she would get with blindness and how she would just cry out to the Lord for healing. Been there, done that. And then she described something I knew I would not be able to identify with. She described how one night she and her husband knelt before their bed and they cried out to the Lord for healing. And after they prayed for healing, when she opened her eyes, she could see clearly. She talked about how she went to the doctor the next day. And as the eye doctor examined her eyes, he was flabbergasted because it was a 100% certifiable miracle. The woman didn't have enough retina to justify the degree of vision that she had. It was a miracle. Well, as I listened to her describe this, my eyes welled up with tears. And as they streamed down my cheeks, I had so many thoughts and feelings like, wow, God, that's a miracle. What you can do. It's amazing what you can do. And then I also had tears of just, I don't know, maybe we'd call them empathy. It was this sense of, I knew what Marilyn had carried her whole life. I knew the burden that had been lifted and there was a part of me that just was joy, happy for, for her. I was happy. But there were also a whole lot of tears that I cried that day because even though I wept with what God could do, I was also weeping because of what he did not do. What he did not do for me what he chose to do for Marilyn was capable of doing for me, but did not do for me. And I know why the Lord had me pull out that tape that day. Because it, it gave me an opportunity to encounter him in a way I had not. I had to sit in that theater and look straight into the face of blindness and straight into the face of healing and see God in both. I had the opportunity to move from the, oh God, you're just not fair, to God, 
You are just, not fair. You see, Psalm 18, verse 30, says, As for God, His way is perfect. As for God, His way is perfect. He is just. He is right in what He does. He is right. His ways are just. His ways are right. God is just, not fair. So, can... Is a just God be, or is a just God, fair? Scene two. First century Palestine, an imaginary vineyard. This is in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Jesus told this story. It's a parable. It's, a, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A landowner came out first thing in the morning to the city square because he wanted to hire some day laborers to work in his vineyard. So when he arrived at 6 a.m., there were already a couple guys there. Now, this part is not in Scripture. This is the part I'm imagining. There's a couple guys there named Yoshi and Gabe. And they were real motivated. They wanted to work hard. They wanted to earn some money. So they show up. They've got their sunscreen on. They've got their boots on. They're ready to work. And so when the landowner arrives, he says to them, I will give you one denarius if you will work for me today. Yoshi and Gabe pull up their trousers and they head out to the vineyard and they get working hard. Well, a few hours later, about nine o'clock, the landowner goes right back out to the city square again and he finds some more laborers just waiting around. He says, hey, you need some work. I'll pay you a denarius. Come work for me. They go work. About noon, the landowner goes out one more time and he finds some more gentlemen and he says, come work for me, I'll give you denarius. They follow him and they start working. Well, here's Yoshi and Gabe. They've already had to reapply the sunscreen because they're sweating so much. And they're watching these other guys show up. And they really aren't sure what to make of it, but they keep working hard for their one denarius. Three o'clock, the landowner goes right back out to the city square, hires a few more guys and they come back. The vineyard is full of workers. 5 p.m., just about time for everybody to quit work. The landowner goes out one last time, and he finds some men, and he says, come work for me. I'll give you a denarius. 6 o'clock, the foreman blows the whistles, and all the guys, including Yoshi and Gabe, gather around. And the landowner says to the foreman, now I want you to pay these men, and I want you to start with the ones who were hired last. And I want you to give them the same amount of the that I promised the guys who were hired first. Well, here's Yoshi and Gabe watching this happening. The guy that has barely broken in a sweat because he's only been there for one hour gets one denarius. And then everyone is paid and it gets to Yoshi and Gabe. And here they are with farmer tans, sweaty and stinky, exhausted, and they get the same amount. And so evidently they start to grumble and they start to complain. Because it's not fair. Because they're not treated equally. It, it just doesn't make sense. It's not fair. And so in verse 13, the landowner responds. And he says to Yoshi and Gabe, he says, friends, am I not being fair? Didn't I promise you one denarius? And didn't I pay you one denarius? Now take your money and go. Isn't it my prerogative or my right to do what I will with my money? You see, Yoshi and Gabe 
thought the landowner couldn't possibly be fair because they weren't treated with preferential treatment. They worked for a day. They worked longer than the guy who barely broke a sweat. They should have gotten more. It wasn't fair. Often, we look at fairness as, well, if she gets it, I should get it. Or if he deserves it, then I deserve it too. Or why should I suffer and her not suffer? That's not fair. We, we, we equate equality with fairness. But I'm not sure we have the correct understanding of fairness. Because if we really look at the Lord, I'm not sure we want him to be fair to us. I think we want him to be just, not fair. Scene three. 2008. Bitter cold January in the Northwest. I'm traveling to speak at a women's conference. And as I make it through the sleet and the snow and arrive, I learn a little bit more about the precious people at this conference. And I learn that they are mostly from a denomination who probably has a different understanding of healing than I do. There are some denominations that um, understand scripture to mean that if you have enough faith, you will be healed. And if you are not healed, Simply put, it's because you don't have enough faith. And many people in that particular denomination tend to interpret scripture that way. So when I recognized that I had been invited to speak, I thought, wow, that's amazing because here I am a blind Bible teacher. I'm like the poster child for God doesn't always heal. And so I'm thinking this is really going to be a neat experience, you know. Well, Friday night, uh, when it was the opening session, I was to speak three times. I simply just kind of related to the ladies, and I told them a lot of my story of my journey into blindness. I explained to them a little bit about just how God can make it well with your soul, even when it isn't well with your circumstances. And when I sat down on the front row after I'd finished, the lady in charge stood up, and she said a few things that I thought... I'm not sure she really likes what I said, but I also thought, Jennifer, do not be oversensitive. It's nothing, no big deal. She was kind. She was not disrespectful. It was just an edge. There was something there that I thought I detected. Well, by the next morning, after my first session, I realized I had detected clearly because the first session on Saturday morning, I shared out of Daniel chapter three about the three Hebrew children, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I talked about how they had been thrown into that fiery furnace and how God, as our deliverer, always will deliver us. Sometimes, though, he chooses to deliver us through the fire rather than from the fire. And when I sat down after that message, the woman in charge got up, and this time she was far less gracious. And she said a few things that very clearly refuted what I had said. And I thought, oh. The sister doesn't like it. She, she does not agree with me. And I was feeling really self-conscious and really concerned because I knew that in 30 minutes I was going to share my last message. And that last message was going to be out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And that's the chapter where the Apostle Paul talks about the thorn he had in the flesh. 
this really difficult thing in his life that caused him pain. And he asked the Lord to remove the thorn. Over and over he asked him, and God did not remove the thorn. God gave him something better. He gave him grace. Which, by the way, when you read that passage, please note that if God removing the thorn would have been the best answer to the apostles Paul's prayer, that's what he would have done. But grace is more sufficient than thorn removal. And so that's what God did for Paul. He gave him grace. And that's what I knew I was about to teach those women. But I knew the sister wouldn't be happy with it. So my friend Karen, who was traveling with me and I were together and we were praying, should I do it? Should I change my message? And I told the Lord, I am willing to change the message. I don't want to cause anybody problems, namely me. And so whatever I need to do, Lord, I will do. Well, I knew that the Lord was leading me to still teach from that. And so I had this deal with him, Lord. Okay, so if the, if the thorn is still in the scriptures, by the time I get to speak, I'll talk about it. But if you want to remove it between now and then, we're good. So, of course, when I got up to share, the thorn was still in the scripture. So I shared about living with thorns. Well, when I got finished and sat down, the lady in charge got up, and there was not one vestige of graciousness left in her. She was not happy. And I knew this because she began with, I would like to thank our little speaker. And then she addressed the audience. And she said, every woman in this room deserves to be healed. If you believe you deserve to be healed, I want you to stand to your feet. Well, women began to stand. And as they were standing, she continued to repeat herself. You deserve to be healed. If you believe it, you stand to your feet and you show God you believe you deserve to be healed. And they stood and they stood and they wept and the music began to swell. And I understand why women stood. They were heartbroken. There were women in there that were praying for deliverance for their children, restoration of their marriage. They needed God to move. I totally understood their heart's desire. But I remained seated. And the reason I continued to sit was because she kept saying, if you believe you deserve to be healed, stand to your feet. Well, Karen and I are sitting on the front row, and so I say to her like a ventriloquist, is everyone standing? And she says back to me, everyone but us. And I said, I can't stand. She said, neither can I. And the reason I remained seated was not because I thought God could not heal me. The reason I remained seated was not because I thought, well, God doesn't love me enough. I haven't earned it. I'm not good enough. I don't have enough faith, so God wouldn't heal me. No. The reason I remained seated was not because I thought God didn't want to heal me. The reason I remained seated was simply because of how she consistently phrased the appeal. If you believe you deserve to be healed, stand. I remain seated because I do not deserve to be healed. I don't deserve anything from God. In fact, what I deserve, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. What I deserve from God is what I did not get from him. My very nature, no matter how sweet I might try to be or how good I am, my very nature is sinful. 
I don't deserve any attention from God, love from God. I don't deserve any of that. I've done nothing to merit that. In fact, my very nature makes it, why would God even pay attention to me? But see, he didn't give me what I deserve. Because Psalm 103 verse 10 says, God does not treat us as our sin deserves, nor does he repay us according to our iniquity. But instead, as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our sins from us. It's not fair. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9 says, you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sakes he became poor. So that through his poverty, you might be made rich. That's not fair. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve for great grace. We don't deserve love. But what we do deserve, which is eternal separation from him, we didn't get that. I'm so thankful. God doesn't treat us like we deserve. I'm so grateful. He is just not fair. So what do you do when you're living in scene four? Scene four is today. In your life. In your pain. In the midst of a relationship that is difficult. You may be sitting in this church. You may be sitting at a desk somewhere watching this online. You may be sitting among friends. You may be sitting alone. But in this moment, in this scene of your life, how do you live it out when it's not so well with your circumstances? I want to give you four things that can be a kind of a part of your script to live out this scene well. Four things each begin with a letter of the word fair. So it's easy for you to memorize your script. F-A-I-R. F. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. Jesus is where we fix our eyes. That's where we put our focus. You see, when life doesn't seem fair and things aren't working out like we hope, we don't fix our eyes on others. What he got, what she got, what we wish we had. We don't compare. We don't fix our eyes on others. We fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the author. He's the finisher of our faith. We don't fix our eyes on our problem. You know what you focus on will become the biggest thing in your life. And if you focus on that problem, that's all you will be able to see. But instead of fixing your eyes on your problem, you fix your eyes on Jesus. And you fix your eyes on the joy that's coming. That's what Hebrews says in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12. That we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy... That was set before him. Endured his cross. I'll tell you brothers and sisters. There are some days that blindness just. Ugh, just gets the best of me. And I just. I'm done. One more bruise. One more bloody nose. I'm just tired of it. Banging into things. And those are the moments. I have to fix my eyes on Jesus. And fix my eyes on the joy. And when I do. You know what I see? Ah, the reality that. 
Earth may be hard, but earth is short. Heaven is long. And you can keep your eyes fixed on the joy. Because as hard as this is now, sisters and brothers, it's like this compared to eternity. So you fix your eyes on Jesus. A, admit your pain. Admit it. If it hurts, admit it. That's what Psalm 62 verse 8 says. Psalm 62, 8, we are to trust in the Lord at all times. We are to pour out our hearts before him. For he is a refuge for us. In other words, if it hurts, it's okay to cry. Now, the Lord calls us to go from glory to glory, not drama to drama, okay? So I'm not talking about some of you who are, you know, have a real good pouring mechanisms, need a lid every now and then. So... I'm talking about a balanced approach. <laughs> but we are to pour out our hearts before the Lord. We admit our pain. When Jesus, the Son of God, stood before the tomb of his friend Lazarus and his heart was broken, he didn't say, okay, Jesus, you got to suck it up. You're the Son of God. <laughs> no. He wept. Because life hurts sometimes. I mean, it breaks your heart when someone you love has cancer. It's hard when you get a diagnosis you didn't expect. It's okay. It doesn't mean you're less spiritual or God is less capable if you feel sorrow. Admit your pain. You see, when you repress it, repression will lead to depression, but honesty will lead to intimacy. Repression leads to depression. Honesty leads to intimacy. And what we are not honest about, we will never be free from. So admit your pain. I invite God's presence. You need him. Invite his presence into your pain. Psalm chapter 145 verse 8 says, The Lord is near to those who call on him. Those who call on him in truth, call on him. Invite him into your pain. Don't wait to get cleaned up and understand it all before you invite him in. Let this sorrow, this suffering, this difficult circumstance become a bridge that connects you to God. Not a barrier that separates you from him. I've been asked so many times if I've been angry with God because of blindness. And I've really tried to think through it because I get super frustrated. But anger toward God is not something I've ever really dealt with. And I think it's God's grace. Because I think I, I really somehow have understood how much he loves me. But you know what? I think intuitively there's something in me that knows I'm not going to be mad at him. I need him too much. <laughs> I can be blind with God. But there's no way I can be blind without him. So I invite him into my pain. And I find that his presence is more satisfying than any answer I could ever get from him. Last one, R. Rest. Rest in the Lord. When hard things happen, we tend to take one of two postures. We either wrestle with God. Lord, you should have been this way. I think you should do this. Would you please fix this? And you wrestle. I don't like this. I don't love it. God is just not fair. And you wrestle. Or you can rest. God is just not fair. And only one of those choices will really bring you spiritual peace. 
Psalm 37, 7 says, Rest in the Lord patiently. Don't fret or fear or freak out. That's the original Greek, freak out. <laughs> when you happen to see evil prospering, rest in the Lord patiently. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. And at the end of one of his books called Till We Have Faces, the narrator of the book is saying, you know, she's gone through all these different trying to figure out what's up with God and she finally has this moment and she says, I, I, know, I know now, Lord, why you do not utter any answers because you yourself are the answer. Rest in him. If you looked at the word rest, R-E-S-T, and you looked at the word resist, R-E-S-I, S-T. What is the one letter in the word resist that's not in the word rest? I. I. I didn't want it to turn out this way, Lord. I don't like this, Lord. But I is the first step into isolation. You need the Lord. So fix your eyes on him. Admit your pain. Invite him into that pain. And then rest in the Lord. Because you do need his presence more than you need deliverance, healing, or answers. When you came today, you received a program, and on that program is a perforated piece, the connection card. On there's an opportunity for you just to say what's on your heart. You got to hear from me today. You get to hear from Pastor Brad. But I know this church wants to hear your voice because this church cares about you. If you have something that you need to be prayed for, would you please mention that on your card? And if you need to understand more about making it truly well with your soul by inviting Jesus into your life, we want to help you with that. So would you mark that on your card also? You've been to church today. You've even maybe been to church online. But you need to come to the cross because that's the only place you trade in your sin and your sorrow for the salvation and freedom that comes in Christ. So please do that today. There will be a prayer team here for you to pray with if you'd like to talk to someone. And you can leave your connection card in the boxes as you leave. But until then, may I pray a blessing over you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for your people. I thank you for every heart. There is not one tear that is shed that you do not see and capture in your bottle. Please remind each broken heart and each questioning soul of your presence and of your provision. And would you grant to them salvation through your son, Jesus? Would you truly make it well with their souls? In the name of Jesus, I thank you. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.